we are continuing our study of First Timothy, and we have reached chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, we're going to look at the first 16 verses. Uh, the, in this epistle, the Apostle Paul is sharing wisdom with Timothy, his protege in ministry. And he does so in a way that is meant to serve the church. Uh, as Doug had pointed out last week, he's speaking specifically to Timothy, but it was also a letter that was known and meant to go to the whole church. It, it instructs all of us uh, about the heart and mind of God. And he, at the beginning of this chapter, he briefly addresses intergenerational relationships, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul here covers uh, the categories of how we interact with those older, younger, male and female. And the language he uses for all of them. So whoever it is you're going to engage with within the church, uh, the picture is that you are to treat them as you would your family. Uh, because all believers are indeed part of our forever family. Uh, even more than our biologically and earthly families, our spiritual family, our churches. That's an, an eternal family. And that mindset of how we interact with believers, uh, it, it's, it goes deeper than just people we like or people who go to the same place that we do, people who are friends. There, there's something deeper we're to see within it. Uh, we cannot say about every organization we involve ourselves in that they're like a a mother, father, brother, or sister. The church is singularly unique. And that's part of what we need to see in this is the uniqueness of the relationships in the church between believers. So Paul here is not merely giving relational advice, though he is. He is commenting on the nature of the church itself and of our relationships with one another under our Heavenly Father. So what are some implications then for what Paul means for us to see when he brings that this picture of how you engage with one another, uh, you're to be thinking of how you interact with your own family. Hopefully getting along with your own family. Uh, we have a responsibility to treat one another with abiding love, care, and respect. Uh, and most people are going to consider that to be the right way to treat people, even if you're at a Starbucks. But it, here it goes beyond just uh, the easy way of showing respect and love and care when you're just on surface interactions with people. Within the life of the church, we're, we're pressing in more, and at times, 
things can get a little dicey or it, we know people in their uglier moments. It's how are we in the long term, how are we as we stick with relationships, sticking with it as we would family? Uh, because it's not as though we never have arguments with our family, as though there's never disagreements. Uh, sometimes it's, it's easier to get in fights with family than other people, those that we're used to. But even with those, we recognize what, but they're still family. And we are remaining stuck with each other and committed to each other, even though at times we do have strains and conflicts. Uh, we are to be looking out for one another, protecting each other, defending and you know, cheering on one another, you know, wanting the best. You know, think of greeting cards. To my older sister, you know, who's always been a friend to me or whatever. You read in the cards what it says about how wonderful, the best brother in the world, the best mom in the world. It, the, that language that... Uh, that kind of the sentimental language that's used to capture uh, what the relationship really means to us, uh, that kind of attitude we're, we're to have about our brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. Family members are people with whom we are always connected. We have a history with them and we have a, a future with them. We... We recognize that, and that it's part of what makes the relationship in family different and deeper. Well, so it is with the family of God, the people in our local church. We have a history with them. That's part of, part of what makes these relationships so strong is our history is that we all have been rescued by the same Savior in the exact same way. Uh, none of us were, you know, we were, this one was closer to God, only had to kind of be saved part way. You know, this is someone that, you know, they just needed a little push by God and they became a Christian. All of us were condemned. All of us were broken by sin. We all, through spiritual birth, the grace of God, have that history of coming in. We share that together and we have this future beyond description that we all forever will share an eternity with our Heavenly Father, with our Savior, and with each other. Sometimes when you think of forever, and you start, forever, forever, a billion years is nothing, and it can almost start getting scary. What do you do with all that time with each other? Uh, part of it, I, I think of is, uh, I don't know how many people will be in heaven. They say there's been 22 billion people who've lived on the earth so far. If 10% are believers, that's over 2 billion, 20%, 4 billion, it's a lot of people. Uh, and we will get to know every single one of that deeply and intimately. It'll take a couple billion years just to do that. <laughs> but eventually we will know everyone and their story. 
We will see them, know them, love them, know their history, have shared something with Life will be filled with this vast array of people we deeply love. The, the kind of love and relationship, when you see them, you think, wow, it's that person I love so much. Uh, that's what we'll feel about every single one. And they will all think that about us. That, when you think about eternity, where everyone thinks you're wonderful. How about trying that on for some daydreaming? In heaven, everyone will think, I'm wonderful! (laughs) We'll have a lot of best friends. (laughs) Even when we're frustrated by family, hurt by them, in conflict by them, we we recognize that we, we stay family. Now, we were, at times, families do break apart permanently. Relationships do separate and are not restored. But we recognize that's not what anyone wants. That's not natural. That's regrettable. That's not what families were meant to be, even if that does happen at times because of the brokenness of the world. Uh, the goal we have with family is always restoration. We, we want it to work. We want it to be good. We want unity. We want involvement with each other. So th- think about how do you respond when someone in your church offends you, is careless with what they say, or maybe even say something hurtful. when they're selfish with you. How do we think about them? Is it time to move to the other side of the church? Even time to find a new church? Do we respond in ways of distance, of separation? Do we recognize? uh, The real issue is how do we make this work? How is this restored, repaired? How does my attitude change toward that person? All of this is reflective of how God treats us. If someone was to keep score of offensive behavior against them, I think God would have the longest list with each one of us. Because every sin is a sin against him, an offense against him. Uh, We can be bothered because, you know, someone ignored us today. Think how many days we've ignored God. How many days we hadn't thought of him, spent time with him. Uh, But we recognize God is ready always to receive us, to communicate with us. That's the heart of God for us and is meant to be the heart we have for one another in Christ. So uh, what is meant to happen here is reflective of God's heart for us. Now beyond the kind of the general framework, the picture of family. So you know, the older women as mothers, the older men as fathers, the younger women as sisters, the younger men as brothers, the 
in two of these, we're given a little extra counsel and wisdom. Uh, because in, in those two relationships, uh, I think there's particular temptations for misuse to creep in. Uh, the first is, do not rebuke older men. Uh, treat them as you would a father. And as, as I was going through this, it, it, it struck me in the middle. Because you're, you're always thinking of yourself, so I should treat older men. So wait a minute, I'm the older guy. <laughs> wait, how did that happen? I don't like this. So all of you pay attention. All you young guys. Younger men can be frustrated with older men who they think are caught in their ways. Whether it's in the home or business, in the church. Uh, so there, there's what is natural in a sinful world sometimes for that to be that generational tension that can be between younger and older men. The younger men not catching up, not understanding, not seeing. And the older with the younger of just slow down. I've been through this already. And so there is the recognition. It, Paul's not saying, uh, younger men, you have to agree with it, whatever the older men say. Though as time goes on, you know, I wish that more and more. But he doesn't say we, we agree with them. What he does command is a gracious attitude and respect. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Uh, the older generation should not be treated dismissively. Rather, we want to uh, seek to understand what shapes their views and why are they resistant? Or what's creating the tension? What, what's going on there? And we, and with all relationships, we tend to get frustrated when someone kind of isn't agreeing or not willing to go on the same path. And we often quickly go to frustration. Uh, but when we go to understanding, well, why are they thinking the way they do? Often we find out about history and experience, which often can lead to an appreciation of what someone has been through. And then understanding, oh, okay, I understand now. Obviously, with what they've been through, this is what is affecting their thoughts and what's their concern. There's a lot of appreciation we can gain as we understand where we're coming from and why we're thinking a particular way. The encouragement here, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him, doesn't mean agreeing necessarily, uh, but the way in which you engage with them should be encouraging to them. That we want to understand. We want to know what's going on and why they value what they do. And, and that is encouraging to someone when they're heard, when they are understood. And Paul is speaking of this specifically with the older, younger men, but these truths aren't limited to that. So women aren't, well, glad we don't have to worry about that. 
He's bringing up areas and tendencies, but uh, these things are for all of us to understand and to be a part of how we're thinking about relationships. The other specific counsel, extra counsel he gives, verse 2, older women as mothers, and then younger women as sisters, and he adds, in all purity. The purity here is obviously sexual purity. Uh, Men are never to treat women as goals, objectives. And we live in such an exploitive society where women are not just objectified. Uh, There are many famous women highly admired that build their lives and careers on being as objectified as possible. It's embraced, and that mentality then comes into young girls thinking, well, that's how you get ahead, and that's how you're popular, and that's how you should be seen. You should want to be seen that way. Um, and that's, that's a path that doesn't end well for anyone. A lot of brokenness. A lot of, of hurt in that path, uh, which explains so much that we see around us. In any you know, relationship that a, a man is having with a, a young woman, dating, romantic, pursuing relationship, the ultimate goal is always that God is honored. And that whenever the relationship does end, or if it continues, uh, everyone would be able to say, uh, we were built up in the Lord through knowing each other. God was honored, and we were mutually encouraged in how we love the Lord. Uh, There should never be a sense of awkwardness when you see them, because you know how you acted toward them, which with an inappropriateness that now you're uncomfortable with. Uh, The recognition of respect and care is meant to be in all of these relationships. Now, the rest of this section looks at the care of widows. And we could think, how much is there to say about that? And either this is going to be five minutes left in the study of what it says about widows, or it's going to be long and ponderous and it'll never end. Uh, Again, how we look at what is here, there's not only specific practical advice given of how we act in the church, but again, what is deepest is we're understanding the nature of the church and the nature of the heart of God. And we're seeing how that plays out in some specific areas, uh, but more fully, we're, we're always to be learning what the, what the church is. And what are the ways that we interact with one another? So in verse 3, it says, Honor widows who are truly widows. And this isn't something that uh, the Apostle Paul just something that was 
on his heart that he's introducing into the scripture. Uh, this is a theme that has run through the whole Bible in the Old Testament. It, it, it speaks about the community giving care for uh, the widow and the orphan. Uh, we have then in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 27. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, as the church is starting to grow and the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, uh, meaning the, the Greek Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So care was being given to the, the Hebrew uh, widows and those that were from a Greek background who were, were a little bit outside the culture were not receiving the same care. So this is a theme that has run throughout scripture that is emphasized here again uh, by Paul in the New Testament. Churches are to look out for widows who have no one to care for them. Uh, we see this beginning of verse, start with three going on, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We see that uh, the first level of care is always family for family. As Paul is bringing up, there is this group within your midst who may be vulnerable that we need to be thinking about and paying attention to need, but family is who should have the responsibility to care for them. This is repeated three times, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 16. So this is central to how the, the church understands how care is provided, and it speaks strongly what God has to say about family, the nature of family, the responsibilities that continue in family. When families abdicate this responsibility, verse 16 says, first, they unnecessarily burden the church because the church is going to care for those that are in need in their midst, and if family doesn't, the, the church will do that. But that's something that a church that has many responsibilities for a lot of people shouldn't have to take on if there is family present. More seriously, we put ourselves at odds against the heart and intention of God. Verse 
4, when we family does care for one another, this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 8, when we don't, he says, you've denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The denying of the faith is, uh, we're denying basic truths about God and family that he created. We're, we're denying the fundamental creative principles of God in the world. And even unbelievers recognize that. They have uh, the common grace to know that, well, family takes care of family. That's why he says you're worse than an unbeliever. There's a hardness there when family refuses to care for those that they can, that they have responsibility to. Uh, he said, that's a hardness that you don't even see among unbelievers in general. I, they know that. So it, it speaks to the spiritual condition. If someone who claims to be a believer is unwilling to take care of their own family. The next qualification, uh, so first it's whether or not family is able to care for them. The next is whether or not the widow is truly a widow. And again, he says this three times. Honor widows who are truly widows, verse 3. Verse 5, she who is truly a widow left all alone. And then again in verse 16, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, and we see by the context of this, someone who's truly a widow doesn't mean actually someone widowed. Um, because a true widow is just anyone who has lost their husband. That's, that's a widow. You don't have to go further than that. But the context here is uh, those with whom the church has special responsibility. So a true widow, meaning uh, the one that the church is responsible to care for because they are in need and vulnerable. They are in a, a, a category where the church is called to be responsible. And that's what he means here by truly a widow. He, he's pretty direct with it in verse 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone. Someone who doesn't have some to care for them. And verse 5 indicates also that the one who is truly a widow, which means someone whom the church under God should exercise care. There's a responsibility we have for them. It is that no one else is taking that on. But he goes on to add to that that it is someone who loves and serves God. Verse 5, she is a truly a widow left all alone and has set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers day and night. Now, we probably don't know if anyone in the church is praying day or night. We're, we're not seeing that. It's a private activity. 
but it's a private activity that we see the fruit of in a life. We can see if someone, they spend time with the Lord. We can see if a heart is bent toward God. We see a godly heart. And so he, he is telling us that we're to look for those in our responsibility who are alone without care and their heart is bent toward God. This is part of what shapes the responsibility of the church to care for those who are vulnerable in their midst. The church does not have a responsibility, God-mandated responsibility to care for anyone who asks. It's not everyone who shows up at the church door or when I was a kid and you lived in a parsonage next door to the church and they all knocked on the parsonage door. Uh, There is not a God-given responsibility to bring care for them in terms of providing for their finances and needs. We have responsibility, we have gospel responsibilities to everyone we meet, but here Paul's talking about physical and specific care of something that is limited in resource and who must the church care for, that it's not an optional situation. And he speaks of the aloneness without family and those who have a heart for God, those who really are truly part of the church. Churches face an ongoing stream of requests for help. I saw it many times as a kid with the the people coming uh, to the house looking for my dad, asking for money. Uh, I mean, we've experienced it many, many times, you know, more than I can count over all these 40 years of of ministry and everyone has a hard story. You know, no one comes and asks for money and says, you know, I don't need it that much, but if you could. A lot of times there's long practice stories. Every story sounds very sad. Um, Sometimes it's real, sometimes it's not. Very often they're going to every church in the area Sometimes they forget which churches they've already contacted or not. And it, wait a minute, didn't didn't you know your your mom die three months ago that just died last week and the last time you called? We had someone that actually in an anonymous letter asking for $10,000 in cash. They couldn't explain the reason right now, but we could trust them that it was very important. And later on, they would be able to share with us why and uh, put it in a bag behind the shed on the wood line and put you know some colored ribbon on the door. They would know it was there and so, All kinds of requests can come. 
It's always very important. It's important to them. Which means every time you get a request that falls outside of the parameters given, it's not comfortable. It's hard. How do you respond and deal with that? Uh, the church needs to understand the foundation, which is what does God say about the responsibility of a local church to its congregation? Now, churches can choose to do more than what Paul says, this you must do. And particularly uh, with some churches in their mission and where they are, it makes it uh, very important for gospel mission to do more and be engaged in the community uh, as a, a part of how they are ministering the gospel. But also, not all help helps. Uh, I, I've been just started reading a, a book by a man who no one really has ever heard of, but has been tr traveled the world for decades in all the hardest places of the world, just interviewing thousands of people in the hardest places in order to give reports to government agencies concerning this is what's actually happening here. This is what's actually going on. These are the actual needs. And at one point he talks about it, it caught my attention in Guatemala, which I've been to many times, and there had been earthquakes and destruction, and so all the agencies are just calling up, send food. The problem was uh, Guatemala that year it had had a wonderful harvest, and so food was not an issue. And actually, because the world was sending all that food to them, it caused food prices to plummet. And so farmers who had crops to sell couldn't get anything for their crops. And that was creating a disaster. What they needed were building materials for their homes and for roads. Uh, and as he he talks about then and with different nations where you would find, well, the things that the world thinks, well, you have to send all that right now. And the first time he spoke to someone in the State Department about, well, they, they don't need a bunch of free food. They need some things to help them to work and to earn and get some economy and respect going. And, and the man agent says, um, he used language I won't use here, but you don't mess with food aid because nothing will make people angry quicker than talking against food aid because that's an easy thing, especially in prosperous places like us. Just send a bunch of food. We've got plenty of food. Just send food. Doesn't take anything out of our mouths. We feel great. We're helping people, and it doesn't cost us a thing. So there's a lot in dealing with how do you actually help people, people with need. And once you go beyond those who are truly widows, now we're talking about people in all sorts of 
sin situations and attitude situations and lifestyle and how we are helping them and what's wise and what's good because what is really wise and good is always looking toward the cross and how do people get there and see that and we need to be thoughtful about what we do and why and how There's also a difference between what a Christian feels led to do and what the church is responsible to do. Because other times there are believers who, who feel uh, an honest prodding of the Spirit of God to help particular situations and people, which when the Spirit of God prods us to do it, the response is, do it. Uh, but what is... God's leading to an individual believer in certain situations isn't the same as what the church has a responsibility to do. So we see care for widows, and then we see what seems to have been a list that widows were placed on, verses 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled... She's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, she's in hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. That's quite a list. Similar to what we see in Acts 6 with the, the Hellenist widows weren't being taken care of the same as the Hebrew widows, we, we see there is some form of list of knowing who are the widows of our church, who are those among us, There's, which means there is some form of membership. It, it may not have looked exactly like what we have, and membership can be handled different ways in different churches and places, but there has to be an understanding of who is part of the church because the church does have specific commanded responsibilities for those who are the members of the church. And speaking as a pastor where the office of pastor leads to a lot of the decision-making or the office of deacon where you are responsible for leading in the care and decisions. Uh, it becomes rather important that you know who under God you are responsible to because if you are responsible under God to them, that means you're accountable to God for how you fulfilled that responsibility. And when you start talking about accountability before God, you start wanting to know, well, who exactly am I responsible for? You know, the neighborhood kid, I'm sure many of you fed many neighborhood kids who ended up in your house at some point, just happened to be there, or maybe they didn't like what they were having. I mean, you take care of, you, you feed kids all the time. Uh, when it came time to, you know, some dental work, uh, 
your address, three houses down. They have the responsibility for the heavy lifting. And so uh, membership, which often Christians can think, what's the big deal? What's it matter? What matters is the operation of the church is about serious care, accountability, responsibility. So who is it that we're responsible for? Uh, Who are the people that we have to shepherd? And if we don't shepherd, we are failing what God has given us. And for the, the Christian you know, especially some who may float around, there are different places all the time. What, what church am I responsible to be a part of what happens? I'm part of the solution to how the church brings care. Without some way to identify and say, yes, these are those we're responsible to. The, This is the group that I'm committed and a part of, and unless that's identifiable, it it gets pretty murky. And there's a lot of failure of care and a lot of lack of responsibility that happens. So it's not a small matter to know specifically who we're responsible for. And just as a church then has serious responsibilities of those that God has said, You must care for them. Uh, We see here, God also puts serious responsibility on those who are cared for. I think most of us, we look at the list and we can squirm a bit. You have someone in the church who has serious needs and they come from help. And you just open the page and go, here, do you see yourself? It's a little gutsy. That could come off as a little harsh. Now, the list here is a picture, not a checklist. There are are women who never have children. The, The fact that they never had children doesn't mean they can't be cared for. Um. The picture is someone who has been a faithful person where God has them. They've been faithful in their family. They're faithful in the church. They are faithful to God. Or we could say they are a true Christian within the church. They are a true church member, which just as a true widow is one that is someone who is in the need and is someone who does love God and a true church member is someone who, who is not just on a list, it's, it's someone who is part of the life of the church. That's what a member is, as we see 1 Corinthians 12 and the body. The members all are connected and each of them do things. That's what a member is. And, and so Paul is as he is showing the church about their care, it's also not just showing the leadership of decisions, it's showing the whole church, this is what church life should look like, which 
also is going to be expressed when there are needs and decisions, and that's when some of these issues come up. It can be ignored and no one paying attention, and there are certain times where it comes up, well, are you a part or not? And he wants all of us, leaders, members, all of us to understand this is what it means to be a local church. This is what it means to be people who are serious about how we live for God. And that's what he lists. Do you really live for God? You're, you're saying, I'm here, I want, I need, oh, I'm a part. He said, well, are you? Are you really? Uh, and have you been thinking about God before this moment? True member is not merely names on a list, but those who live the biblical picture of the church. Now, finally, Paul then gives instructions about younger widows, beginning in verse 11. But refuse to enroll the younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but also gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any unbelieving woman who has relative, relatives or true, who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, some of this is pretty clear, okay? Don't go around gossiping, being lazy, busybodies. But the whole thing of, okay, younger, don't enroll younger widows because they're younger. They may actually then get married and if they get married, they're abandoning something. So instead, I want younger widows to go ahead and get married. And a just surface reading, it, it can seem very confusing. It, so we understand from context what he means and what's happening. In the context of the whole. Um, First, we see that there's nothing wrong with a younger widow getting married because he's encouraging you know, to, to be married and have family and being engaged in all that means that God would have for you. So that, that's what God wants and encourages them toward. We also know that care given to those in need is to be given to those who have a mutual responsibility of how they are involved. And we've seen that a, few, a couple of times. They are to be those who are serving and committed and living in godly ways. So I think most commentators would agree that uh, the picture given here is that younger widows who in that helplessness and need, they're coming to the church and there is support being given, and part of the care given to the widow, particularly with younger women who have the energy and the capacity to 
uh, do work is that there is a vow and a mutual commitment. They are committing to almost in a sense working for the church. They are caring for people in the church and uh, they are, their needs are cared for, but they are then being responsible. And there seems to be a vow that's taken because then when they get married and, well, they don't want to do that anymore, they can't. So what they're abandoning, they, it can't be that they're abandoning believing in Christ and living for him because marriage is a good thing and he encourages them to do it. What's being abandoned is some commitment that was made that now they're not fulfilling. And they had been very zealous, yes, God, I'm going to do this. It may have even happened publicly. They may even have been commissioned. And all of that is now, uh, I don't want to do that anymore. And so you have made a commitment to God, which shows us commitments to God have meaning to God. And now you're backing out of that and no longer willing to do that. And he's saying, and we're saying, he's saying that that's going to be a natural problem. That's very often probably going to happen. We don't want that to happen. So I'm encouraging that widows don't make those kinds of vows and commitments when they're young, when there's a very good chance that they're going to want to and be married. So let's not get into that and let's seek to go forward with a healthy family life as God would have you. So there is this abandoning of vows and commitments made. And then verse 13, and besides that, he says, besides that they learn to be idlers, gossips, and busybodies. So someone who all their needs are being cared for, and they don't have family, but you don't have to worry about your financial provision. That's being taken care of. So what do you do? You waste a lot of time is the point he's making. Uh, you, you, that freedom is now being misused. And it's being misused by living a lazy, idle life. And you get around talking. And so uh, things like gossip are easy. Yeah, it's easy enough anyway without too much free time. Busybodies. So you're getting into things where you don't belong in that. That's not your place. So God expects his people to use their lives well, engage in the basic responsibility of family and church life. And an idle life, gossiping, which is sharing what you don't need to share. What, it's not going to help and would lessen people's thoughts of them. And busybody, meddling, prying, these are all offensive to God. And we could view them as well, small things, maybe you shouldn't, but it's not a big deal. God thinks it's a big deal. So to wrap this up, just some general thoughts of big picture, what are we seeing about church and family? I'm not really gonna comment much on these just to list them. These guidelines for the care of widows is a window into the nature of the church, as I've mentioned. Seeing what do we see about the church?
to be lived in community, mutual responsibility, accountability, commitment, and care. That should be filling church life. Second, we see that God takes our involvement in serving one another very seriously because the requirements of those that we have a responsibility to care for involves, are they people who serve the people of God and serve the church? That's what God wants to see. God takes that seriously. Third, care for the congregation is a shared responsibility. It's not just pastors and deacons. At Green Tree, our deacons, their responsibility is for those who are the vulnerable among us. So those who are a widow, who are older, those who don't have family, and, and they have a list. They have the most vulnerable list. Who are those in conditions of aloneness, of vulnerability by health or age, uh, that don't have family, there's no one to care for them, who are in an isolated area, and they know who they are, and they are proactively looking out after them. And particularly in times like tidal flooding or snowing, contacting, are you okay? Do you need help? Because we would find sometimes older people, you find out they've been snowed in, not able to get out for five days. Oh, I didn't want to bother anyone. What bothers us? is you didn't let us know because we can get there. And so our deacons do this very well. And we're thankful. And to do it very well, they also need the entire congregation to be a part of doing it well. Fourth, cutting off family members because we're mad at them, they're difficult, is an unbiblical response. Uh, there are reasons at time to distance ourselves. There could be drugs and abuse and stealing and things. It's, it's just not healthy to stay. Or they could be just so abusive and mistreating in their behavior that we need distance. But our natural inclination is always to lean in, not I've had enough or I don't agree with you, so I'm, I'm cutting off. Uh, there may be some need for distance, but... We're not just to cut off because we're mad at them and their choices. Uh, we can be heartbroken over choices, uh, but we don't stop loving. And, you know, there's tough love, there's responsibility, but we don't want to use that as an excuse for, I don't care. Fifth, bearing God's heart means we are to be generous and gracious people. The church is to be a caring place, and that's to be us. And last, God desires we live productive lives. Part of what he's saying to the widows or those who can, to, to be a part of productive living. God wants us to be people of responsibility, not people of self-indulgence, not people irresponsible, not people of laziness. These are all things he's saying. Uh, that's not right. That's not biblical. That's not Christian. It's not godly. And see, these are all things we are to see about our lives and the church so that we can continue, because I think we are this, but that we continue to grow as a church that lives out this picture wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your people uh, who are serious about you, serious about their private and personal responsibilities toward you and, and serious about what that is toward one another. 
We all struggle at times with it, so give us grace to be growing, to be faithful. We ask for those in our church who haven't seen how wonderful and important and good it is to truly be engaged in the lives of one another, that they would see that this will bless them and make their life part of what is good, that each person would be drawn in and part of how we care for one another. Give us grace for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.